we begin a section <clears throat> in Malachi that will ask us to engage the topic of marriage and human sexuality. And this is such a critical topic. I mean, as I just said a few moments ago, it, it has so many implications. It's a topic that is so intimate to us. It's a topic that's intertwined with tremendous pain, tremendous hurt, tremendous hope, tremendous desire, longing, fear, confusion. So we're going to spend several weeks in it. We're going to take aspects of what Malachi is talking about, and we're going to jump out into other passages of Scripture to touch on it. Um, but I do want to start where Malachi starts today with um, his issues and his culture and then move out from there to our own issues and our culture. So uh, would you all pray with me as we seek the Lord together in his word? Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Lord, have mercy on me a sinner, uh, I pray you would show your faithfulness to your people through your word. And I pray, God, that you would allow me not to malign or preach it in error or irrelevancy or waste. I pray you'd help me to be careful with your word and with your souls, your people. Lord, I, I preach in the fear of you this morning, knowing that I am deficient in, in many ways as I come to the pulpit this week. But I, Lord, ask for your mercy, that you would bless your precious word and bless your precious blood-bought people whom you have poured out the blood of your Son for. I look to him now. I ask my brothers and sisters to look to him now to be faithful, to shepherd and to care, even through imperfect vessels to our imperfect hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read Malachi 2, starting in verse 10, and I'll read through 16. And though I'll read the whole passage, we're going to focus on the first two verses, the first three verses, and leave the second half to next week. So Malachi 2, starting in verse 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. 
And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Did you notice the word faithless? It occurs five times in seven verses. Faithlessness is arguably the great theme of this passage on marriage, if not the whole book of Malachi. And to try to get the core of why, I want to start by talking about the antonym of faithlessness, and that is faithfulness. In Exodus 34, there is a critical moment in the history of God and mankind. After leading Israel out of Egypt with miracles never before seen in the human experience, the people rebel horribly in their lust for a life that they can control, which will not require dependence and faithfulness on a God they cannot control. They make a calf, a calf of gold, and they begin to worship it as their God. And they say, this is the God that led us out of Egypt, that was faithful to us. And God tells Moses, because he knows what's going on, they're on the mountain preparing the law. And God tells Moses that his anger is so great that he's going to destroy Israel completely. And he's going to begin afresh with Moses. But Moses pleads with God. But he doesn't just plead with God. He appeals to God in a very specific way. Listen to how Moses appeals to God. Listen to his argument. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham. Sorry about that. Remember Abraham. Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring 
as the stars of heaven. And all this land I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Do you see how Moses appealed to God? Moses appeals to God concerning his faithfulness. His faithfulness. He says, God, be faithful to the promises you made long ago. And the Lord's heart is moved. And he recommits to stay with Israel. Of course, Moses could have started afresh with Moses and kept his his commitment. Moses was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that wasn't God's first commitment. His commitment was to the people he led out of Egypt. And and Moses says, please, God, be faithful to these people. And in the pain and the relief and the crisis of that moment, Moses, it's a beautiful chapter, chapter 34 of Exodus. There's such intimacy and vulnerability between Moses and God. And Moses, after God relents, he's moved to ask God to show him more of who he is. It's as if he's in this interchange in God's mercy. Moses has gotten a glimpse of God's heart and he just says, I, I want to, it's like the Holy Spirit's at work and he just says, I, w- I want to know more. I want to know more. Show me your glory, he says. He says, essentially, make known to me more of your heart. Let me see your worth. Let me see who you are more than I do right now. And so the Lord, in this gentle scene, he sets Moses on a rock and he covers him to protect him from the fullness of his glory because he says it would destroy Moses. So God protects him from being destroyed, yet he shows him a glimpse of who he is. He moves past Moses in perhaps the fullest and most intimate way that God had since he'd created man. He reveals himself. And he says this, well, it says this, the Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with him there, that is Moses, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, here's what God said, the Lord, the Lord, that is Yahweh, Yahweh, remember Yahweh's connected to that, that Hebrew verb to be, the I am that I am the self-sufficient one. So he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So God didn't just give Moses a a visual representation of who he was. He revealed his heart to Moses very specifically. And the first thing he says about himself is this, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, that's overflowing, Instead, fast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. When God reveals himself to Moses, he tells him that one of the attributes that is at the very core of his being is faithfulness. 
and, and by the way, you'll see faithfulness wrapped around steadfast love again and again in Scripture. They, they go together. It's like twins. God's faithfulness is a steadfast, loving faithfulness very often. And his steadfast love is a faithful, steadfast love. God is faithful to his core. He keeps his promises. He keeps his commitments. He is true. He is loyal. He is reliable. He does not change. He doesn't lie. He doesn't say one thing and mean another. His yes is yes. His no is no. He doesn't make a vow and go back on it. He is faithful. What kept God from giving up on Israel? It was his commitment to his promise to be faithful. What does he tell Moses he is? He is faithful in the midst of that commitment. At the very core of who God is, at the heart of ultimate reality, is faithfulness. Listen to that again. At the heart of ultimate reality, of what is, at the heart of reality is faithfulness. For all of eternity, the Father has been faithful to the Son. The Son has been faithful to the Father. And the Spirit gives and receives faithfulness from Father and Son and to Father and Son. Deuteronomy 32, the Lord says about himself, his work is perfect and all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 25 says that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Psalm 36, your steadfast love, O Lord, it extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. We talked about this morning that that you guys woke up, you were asleep, you were awake, but the whole time Jesus was doing the same thing he's always doing, faithfully interceding for you. The scriptures say that he lives forever to continually make intercession for you so that your salvation will be to the uttermost. Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he will never leave you or forsake you because at the core of who God is, is faithfulness. And when we stop to think about it, faithfulness, the the keeping of one's commitment the reliability to one's word, being true to one another, it is essential not only to God's character, but it's essential to this world as well. These are imperfect examples, but this is what we need. This is what is essential to maintain the fabric of our existence. Faithfulness among nations, the keeping of commitments keeps nations adhering to their treaties and from going to war. It keeps nations from, from failing to defend other nations and, and prospering peace. <clears throat> That's what NATO has been about for decades. After World War II, one nation said to another, we're going to be faithful to you. So other nations are afraid to attack them because they're faithful. Or that's the intention, right? That's the whole point. I'm not saying it always works out that way. But those agreements are built on the sense of, hey, we all understand we have an obligation to be faithful. 
for you guys in your daily lives, the, the keeping of your contractual commitments, it compels you as an employee. And the keeping of contractual commitments compels your boss to deal fairly with you and you with him so that, or her so that work can be done, so that incomes can be generated, so that when you multiply that by millions of people and thousands of businesses across the country, whole economies can sustain, be sustained. Think about faithfulness as citizens to the laws of the state. It, it keeps rulers, their, their faithfulness to the t Constitution keeps rulers from veering into tyranny. It keeps citizens from running to rebellion. This idea that we're supposed to be faithful to each other. Again, these are imperfect examples, but we see that leaders are called to honor constitutions and elections, and citizens are called to stop at red lights and stop signs. And this keeps us from anarchy and disorder. And again, in a fallen world, none of this is done perfectly, but this seeking after faithfulness, this agreeing that faithfulness is good, it is at the fabric of what keeps our lives together. And obviously, we know by experience that when faithfulness is abandoned, things quickly become confused, disordered, and broken. When faithlessness enters into the equation and begins to rule our heart, hearts are broken, lives are torn, trust is destroyed, and communal, societal, relational living becomes impossible. And nowhere is this more true among mankind than in our sexual experience. At its very core, sexuality was made to express faithfulness. At its very core, sexuality was made to express faithfulness. If I could sort of try to sum up the whole message this morning, it, it, it's really that idea that as God's image bearers, we were created in our sexuality to express God's image of faithfulness. The Lord created something beautiful and powerful when he created our sexuality. And he did that because he wanted to create something beautiful and powerful, not just to give us enjoyment and pleasure, which he did, but he wanted to use it to explain to us who he was, who he is towards us towards those beings whose image we're created in or those, those beings who were created in his image to be faithful like him. So, so when God created man and a woman, Adam and Eve, we go back to the garden, he created them to come together in every way, in spirit, mind, and body. They would become one. Even their bodies in their sexual design would be meant to come together as one in tenderness and vulnerability and enjoyment. Isn't God a God who is many in one? And so his image bearers were to reflect that many in one union. And grounding this oneness, this union of two who become one, grounding it establishing it, sustaining it, nourishing it, protecting it, was faithfulness.
faithfulness. The faithfulness of a man to his bride and a bride to her husband. And of course, this faithfulness in marriage was God's intention, not just for their good experience with each other, but as I've said, as we've said, it, as the word says, it, it, it was created as a way for them to understand his faithful heart. For the image bearers to better understand the one whose image they bear. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. These are words you know probably, but please listen to them afresh. And hear God's aim. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless so husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are parts of his body. And then Paul quotes Genesis for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he comes back in verse 32 and makes it very clear what marriage was meant to illustrate, what human sexuality was meant to point to. And he says this, This mystery is profound, the mystery of a man coming and becoming one flesh with a woman. And, and make no mistake, sexuality, intimacy, is at the core of that statement, the two becoming one flesh. He says, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Marriage, Paul says, is meant to be a living metaphor, an experienced poem, not first and primarily about men and women, but about God and his people. About the creator and his creation. About Jesus and his bride. The two becoming one. Human sexuality and the one flesh covenant of marriage was created by God to tell a story much greater than itself. The story of the son leaving the father to come and lay his life down for the good of his bride, to deliver her, to nourish her, to cherish her, to be eternally faithful to her because at his core he is eternally faithful. And in response to her husband's faithful sacrificial love, the wife was to be a picture of God's people responding in faithfulness to the love the Lord had shown them as their head. Brothers and sisters, human sexuality is so much bigger than this world says it is. It is so much more profound. It is so much more purposeful. It is so much more glorious. It is so much more beautiful. We, we don't think too much of sex. 
We think too little of it. We don't think too much of it. We think too little of it. We, we make it this powerful, beautiful commodity of pleasure that's to be traded between consensual interested parties. God means it to be a living experience, a, a living poem about his love for us and what our love for him is meant to be in response. Sexuality is meant to reveal God to us his faithfulness, his steadfast love, his covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, faithful, and yes, pleasure-giving love. Ideally, in God's perfect vision for the human experience, God would want us to look at a husband and a wife and be able to say, I see in that husband and wife something of this expression that the faithful Christ has come to us in his compassion, that he's come to save his bride in sacrificial love, that he's come to unite with his image bearer in great desire, that he's come to place his very life inside of us through his spirit, also that we could respond with faithful love in return. Of all the things that marriage and sexuality were created for in the union of one flesh-ness, it was created to proclaim that. And, and I bring all this to you this morning because you'll note we haven't talked specifically about much of Malachi, but I bring this to you this morning by way of introduction to this whole sort of mini-series we'll be dealing with for the next several weeks. Because it, it needs to be the context and the background behind all we'll grapple with, not only in Malachi, but in other scriptures and in our own lives regarding sexuality and marriage. We, we cannot divorce our sexuality from God. We, we can't look for the answers to how should I behave, how should I act, without first asking, who is the one who gave us this and why did he give it to us? Because sexuality doesn't belong to us first. It belongs to him. We didn't create it. He did. It wasn't our idea. It was his. So when we take the desires and the pleasures and longings of sexuality and we separate them from the faithful God who created them, who, whose character and whose promises and whose enjoyments they're meant to reflect, when we live out our sexuality without regard to God, we end up robbing him. And we end up, by some measure, bringing misery upon ourselves. And we can think about what this is like as a church in this culture. Because without understanding God and his purposes for sexuality, his commandments against promiscuity, Pornography, fornication, exploitation, homosexuality, incest, even adultery, they, they lose their meaning. They don't make sense. For, for example, a, a leading reason why the West increasingly 
finds it so compelling and with a sense of justice to vilify biblical standards on homosexuality as bigoted, as hate speech, is that in its rejection of God, it has no spiritual eyes left to see the living poem that sexuality was meant to be in the one flesh union of a man and a woman. Two different becoming one. It, it, it doesn't make sense. And these Christian rules begin to sound capricious and arbitrary. Because sexuality has simply become a property of our own. And, and the purposes and the boundaries are defined by man and not God. And, and I'll tell you what, if, if you don't have a sense of the, of the God authorship and ownership of human sexuality, I don't know how you're not going to see Christian prohibitions against same-sex attraction or same-sex marriage as, as not bigoted. I, I mean, not to be crude, but I, I don't know how you you would even philosophically deny a, a man's right to marry his adult daughter. Why? Why not? If, if we own sex, if, if we are the measure of the boundaries and purposes of sexuality, then who has a right to say what the rules are? And that's, of course, what is happening in our culture. But listen, that kind of hijacking of sexuality taking it from God, that, that happens among us. That's not just something that happens in the world. It happens in our hearts, in the church. It happened in Israel. So I do want to briefly just touch on a couple of things that Malachi says. Moving back through verses 10 through 12. Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers, Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So I want to briefly just talk about the specifics of, of what's going on here. Instead of living in faithful covenant with one another, Israel, in this case, the men of Israel, at least some of them, instead of turning to women of Israel, sisters in the Lord whom they could marry, Judah, God says, is profaning God's covenant by breaking that covenant through entering into another covenant with idol worshipers. The men are marrying women who are not in covenant with Yahweh, who don't know God, who don't love God, who don't worship God, but they worship idols. And these men of the covenant of Yahweh are becoming one flesh in covenant with those who reject God, the God the men are supposed to be in covenant with. So God calls this profaning his covenant, taking something holy and making it disgusting. He says, any who do such a thing, should be, their descendants should be cut off from the people. He calls it an abomination, wicked, vile, and morally disgusting. Why is he so severe about this? 
it doesn't make any sense apart from God's intentions for what sexuality was supposed to represent. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Malachi's hearers should have known that the faithlessness of idolatry had already destroyed Israel and sent Judah into exile. And through the war and the slaughter that came in severe discipline on Judah, here they were, running right back to it, giving themselves to idol worshipers. It was faithlessness, faithless spiritual adultery against God. And from our, from our New Covenant perspective, where we have an even deeper understanding that marriage was to be this living poem of God's faithful love to his people expressed in Christ, we can see something of the, the severity with which God views this, the, the twistedness of it. Because what these men were doing, they were taking the very covenant of marriage, which was meant to represent God's faithfulness to them, and their faithfulness to God, and instead, they were making it the very vehicle for faithlessness. In other words, they were taking the thing that was most meant to express this vulnerable, intimate union that God wants to have with them. They were taking that vehicle, marriage, and they were using it to make union with idol worshipers, people who rejected God. We might think of a man taking a diamond ring off of his wife's finger. Maybe she's asleep. And he takes the ring off of his wife's finger and he gives it intentionally to a woman he's having an affair with. In other words, it would be one kind of sin to buy his mistress a piece of jewelry, but it's an even greater abomination to take the ring off his wife's finger and give it to his mistress. And that, to a large degree, is the crux of so much of sexual sin. It, it's taking this intimate, fragile, vulnerable, beautiful thing meant to give us an, a wonderful and profound sense of God's love for us his longing for us, his desire to have union with us. It's taking it and using that very thing to violate him. course there are some very immediate applications for us especially for those of us who are single or unmarried one direct application from old covenant to new transcends both covenants is that as believers we too are forbidden from taking this intimate vulnerable one flesh covenant of marriage meant to express God's faithful sacrificial love for us and our loving response to him 
we're forbidden from taking that covenant of marriage and using it to become one with someone who doesn't love and care and trust the Lord, who doesn't belong to him. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says to the Christians, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The yoke pictures two animals, maybe two oxen, being pulled in two different directions. It's impossible for them to do the labor called for. There's just disorder and chaos and frustration. So when we wed our hearts that belong to the Lord with someone whose heart does not belong to the Lord, that's the ensuing picture is chaos and confusion and disorder and impossibility to do the work called. I am going to wait just a second if you guys don't mind. It's not my car this time. But, but much more serious, I think, is the implication in Paul's words that there can be no agreement with the temple of God and the temple of idols. Because now we're starting to get at the crux of this intimacy, this vulnerability, this powerful, beautiful picture of union. Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. And then he takes various Old Testament quotes and he, he tapestries them together in this beautiful stanza. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, that is those who don't love the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Do you see the, the intimacy and the favor lavished here? Malachi's hearers, they went to the temple to worship, for that's where God dwelt. But brothers and sisters, we are the temple, for God dwells inside us. So to my unmarried brothers and sisters this morning, I want to appeal to you. Don't take what is meant for a sign of the most intimate, tender, vulnerable union between God and his people. Don't take that metaphor and give yourself to one who rejects God, who is dead to him. Another implication is that dating such a person before marriage, while it's not the same as marriage, it, I think it's safe to say it is courting disaster. You can't give yourself to that person fully and be faithful to God and yet there are emotions and behaviors that will likely be drawing you to them and them to you towards a oneness that dishonors God and will bring hurt to your soul. And this is not 
to even mention the hurt that you may cause them, the heartbreak and frustration as they are looking for that oneness that all human beings in sexuality are looking for, wherever they are in the spectrum, and the poor witness you make as you take them into frustrations of dating someone who can't give themselves to them. This, however, does not mean that if you find yourself currently already married to an unbeliever, one who is willing to live faithfully with you in the marriage, that your marriage is cursed by God. God's word is clear in 1 Corinthians 7, that if you have already made that covenant, God can use you in it and preserve you in it. He will be faithful to you. And God asks you to stay faithful to that person as long as your spouse is willing to stay faithful in marriage to you. But I'm gonna, I want to pause here for today because there's so much more to talk about. And next week we'll continue in this passage to explore more questions about marriage, including how a husband's poor treatment of his wife seriously grieves God and damages his intimacy with God, as well as God's word on divorce. But, but I want to stop with this picture that we started with. I, I want to ask you to try to keep at the forefront of your minds this theme of faithfulness and how it is at the core of God's purpose in marriage and sexuality that, that God is seeking through marriage and its sexual character to communicate something far bigger than simply the wonderful gifts of desire and pleasure that are part of it in his design. He is seeking to express faithfulness to you. He is seeking to give you a living poem, a living picture, whether you're married or looking at marriage. He is seeking to give you a picture of his steadfast, faithful, sacrificial love and the right response he wants for us. This is the eternal purpose of marriage and sexuality. If we keep that as key, if we keep that as the key of all we'll talk about going forward, it will unlock many doors of understanding in a world of increasing sexual bewilderment. But I want us to end with communion. And if you're online, I want you to gather the bread and the juice that you have. Because the truth is, we have all failed. You know what? I, I, I want it. It's so important for me. I, I just, I don't want to make the moment about you guys opening the stuff. So go ahead and open the stuff. <laughs> and then I want to um, comment on something and close with something. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and this is as true with sexuality as with anything. We, we all know this in our hearts. We have all sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God's faithfulness. 
in the expression of our sexuality, the, the picture that it's meant to be of this union, this vulnerable, fragile, intimate, beautiful union between Christ and his people, between God and his creation. We, we've all tarnished and perverted and bent and twisted and broken that image. in all kinds of different ways. And you need to hear this morning, and I need to hear that that is exactly why God wants us to take communion. He gives communion to you to let you know that he knows that you have failed and you have sinned and you have twisted and perverted and broken this picture of what sexuality was meant to be. He knows it. It's the only reason for communion. And obviously to bring him glory in the doing it. But, but Christ poured out his blood. What my point is, Christ poured out his blood for sinners. That's the, those are the only people who can take communion, logically. Are people who've come to trust in Christ as their savior from their sins. He did not come for the healthy He came for the sick. He came not for those who have succeeded in sexual purity. He came for those who have failed miserably in it to pour forgiveness on them and to give them restoring grace through his Holy Spirit that they can build back what's been torn and repair what's been destroyed. Because he won't keep holding their sins against them. But he refuses. And instead pours out his life and empties himself to cover their sin. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church, says Paul. I am talking about the Savior and those who have sinned against him. He comes for them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you left Lord Jesus, you left your Father's side to be joined to us and become one spirit with us. You took upon yourselves all the ways that we fail sexually, all the ways that we have sinned against the gift you've given us. 
and you have conquered those sins and forgiven them. And you have made us one with you. And now we are your body, your bride. And now, Lord, you sacrifice for us, even today. You intercede for us. You love us. You nourish us. You cherish us. And you are ever faithful to us. We don't deserve such love, but we gladly and gratefully receive it this morning. Lord, what a God you are that you would give us the longings of a man for a woman, his desire to be one with her, his longings to be joined with her. And you would give us that as a statement about how you long for us and the oneness you wish to have with us. So please refresh us as we take communion this morning with a deeper sense of your love for us, of our oneness with you, as we partake of you in these signs you've given us of your body and your blood. We ask this of your Father in your name.